You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Don and I, Niels Kastoblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry Parker, where we talked about finding the optimal way of doing trend following and even discussed how to react to a drastic fall in a market like what we saw in Luna just a couple of weeks ago. Also, I would like to encourage you to listen to the midweek global macro episode where Jim and I had Joseph Wang, who's also known as the Fed guy on Twitter, take us inside the Federal Reserve as he was sitting on the open markets desk for five years. And we discussed the challenges that central banks face at the moment in the current environment. Very interesting insights indeed. Now, as you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you to be the best investor that you can be. We want to be provocative from time to time, but without being polarizing. And we want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world. And we want to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. Alan, it is always a great pleasure and a lot of fun to be with you. So um, welcome back. And uh, how are things where you are today? Thanks, Neil. So always a pleasure to be on. It's uh, yeah, f- beautiful uh, sunny morning in Dublin. Um, so looking forward to uh, the rest of the day. But uh, yeah, also looking forward to, to chatting a lot to, to catch up on. We have quite a few things to talk about. Um, so uh, I can't wait to dive into some of these uh, topics that you brought along. Um, before we do so, of course, um, let me just quickly run through what I noticed um, happening this week. And then we'll hear a little bit about the things that you've noticed also in the past few weeks. But to me, of course, you know, fixed income and bond prices uh, are the center of attention at the moment. And this week, they continued to rebound uh, a little bit, in particular in the front end, um, the yield to maturity on the US two-year notes um, declined uh, another 10 basis points last time I looked. 2.49% is where the yield is. And the 30-year bond remained um, the same, more or less, at 2.99%. The steepening of the yield curve is a result of participants expecting a slower growth and lower inflation going forward. In essence, participants have removed future expected rate hikes over the course of the next year, effectively recalibrating the terminal Fed funds rate lower. Now, the mid-month equity swan and the string of earnings misses that we saw also added to the bullish sentiment in the front end of the curve. The FOMC will begin, by the way, to reduce its balance sheet next week, uh, the so-called quantitative tightening, or QT. This will effectively remove the largest price-insensitive buyer of U.S. Treasuries and market-backed securities from the market. And with inflation as measured by the CPI running at 8.3%, And it has been, by the way, above 2% year-on-year for more than 16 months now, and the core PCE running at 5.2% year-on-year. You may have to ask yourself if a 2.73% yield on a five-year maturity in the U.S. makes sense. From what I remember, at least, about Q4 2018, I think the impact that the shrinking of the Fed's balance sheet 
is going to have on liquidity in the credit markets could be quite significant and that this may be extremely painful in the credit markets. But as always, time will tell. Ellen, it's been a few weeks since we last spoke. I'm uh, interested in uh, hearing what uh, has kind of uh, caught your attention in the last few weeks. Yeah, last time I was on, we were very much focused on currencies and the, and the big move up in the US dollar. And, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen an interesting corrective phase set in with the dollar, which is interesting. And I think it's probably tied to what you've alluded to there with the, a little bit of a repricing at the front end of the curve with respect to Fed tightening. What's interesting around all of that is we've had some Fed speakers in the last couple of weeks raising the, the possibility of Fed rate cuts uh, next year and, and beyond, which I find fascinating that we're just about at the start of the tightening cycle and we're already talking about rate cuts. So it's it seems like the Fed is involved in an interesting dance with the market here of trying to manage expectations. Of course, by by, by raising the prospect of cuts, that's, that kind of eases financial conditions. And that might mean they might ultimately have to do more tightening. So it's 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 a fascinating back and forth between uh, the market in terms of managing expectations. But certainly there is a sense that they were trying to take some of those tightening expectations out of the markets. And uh, you know, it, certainly it felt like for a long time people were looking for this bear market rally, and and obviously it looks like we're starting to see it in the last couple of days. So whether whether those uh, you know the, the, this kind of I suppose kind of Goldilocks type scenario of of bringing policy slightly tight and then ultimately easing that, that that's that's kind of what's been alluded to. Whether that actually plays out, you know, that 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 remains to be seen. But that's that's by and large what I think the market is pricing at the moment. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts uh, as you were speaking that uh, came to mind. Obviously, closer to your home for sure. Uh, I couldn't help noticing that um, the Bank of England governor uh, has been out since we last spoke. I think maybe it was mid-May saying that he felt pretty helpless when it came to taming inflation. And of of course, inflation in the UK is expected to hit 10% later this year. Um, and then I think there was like uh, 24 hours later, there was a uh, some a politician or a minister maybe that came out and said, oh, he was very surprised that the Bank of England was helpless uh, in taming inflation. That doesn't sound well yes. uh, in in my in my ear. And the other thing I I kind of I kind of feel that you know there has been of course some chatter in the press about the S and P briefly hitting the minus 20% from its last peak. And therefore, in you know bear market territory, if we go by that uh, rule, and of course we know the NASDAQ uh, has been in that territory for a while. But the question really is to me, is a bear market just something we define by a minus 20% or is, something, or is it something we have to feel? Because yeah. this doesn't feel like a bear market to me, frankly. I'm sure for those who've been in some of these, um, you know, ARC, funds or or, or or Zoom or whatever they're called, these stocks, they will feel it, I have no doubt. But if you look at the S&P 500, generally speaking, if you look at sort of what's going on, it feels more orderly. It doesn't mm. feel panicky. And therefore, it doesn't feel like some of the bear markets we've seen in the last uh, couple of decades. So I don't know what, what, you know, 
Do you sense the same thing? or? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, Howard Marks has a, a, a new note out. Um, I was just scanning it out, uh, this morning and he touches on the same point. You know, you know the, the, this um, preoccupation with whether the S&P hit bear market territory or not. Uh, you know, um, I think he, you know, his letter was more about, you know, the the bull market and the definition of a bull market and, and more the bull market definition is should be more, you know, about the market environment and the psychology of the investors as opposed to any, you know, kind of statistical measure. But equally, I think with respect to bear markets, he, he, he called them, they, they feel nerve wracking. So, um, you know, have we hit that point yet in this downturn? I, I agree with you. If you look at some markets, you know, um, the footsies, you know, not massively off its highs, you know, it, depending on where you are in the world, obviously, See if you have a, a portfolio focused on U.S. Um, growth stocks, it's been painful. But but for, for for lots of investors, I would tend to agree with you. There's probably not a sense of uh, widespread pessimism and despair yet. Um, so yeah, is it a bear market even yet? Uh, yeah, that's an open point. Um, but uh, but but certainly, I, I I do get the sense that the sentiment uh, for 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 the kind of investment research I read is people looking for. Any any move up as 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 a corrective move as opposed to not not reading a lot of people saying oh this is the buying opportunity for a new leg in a bull market. Yeah, I mean, uh, I um, I would concur with that for sure, and and I think generally speaking, given my framework of where I think um, the world is heading, I think we need to kind of change our mindset a bit from buying the dip to selling the rally. I think that's probably more the world we're going to be in, but. Who, who knows? Um, I could be completely wrong, hmm. of course. In terms of trend following this week, I suspect that it's probably been a flat to slightly negative week uh, for the industry, mainly uh, for one of the reasons that you mentioned, the weakening dollar, uh, and also, of course, the fixed income market selling off a little bit in terms of price. And of course, uh, depending on how loose your trend-following pants are, I would imagine the equities were either a small winner or a small loser, depending on whether the models have been uh, sort of going short uh, a little while ago or whether they're still hanging on to uh, to this uh, quote-unquote bull market, at least in some countries, I would, uh, I would imagine. Um, but I do think one thing is worth noticing, and that is that the biggest contributor this week, um, I suspect, would have been energies, because I noticed that many of the July contracts, which is the front month in many of these markets right now, uh, some of them are making new highs for 2022 above the March high, and, and most others are very close to doing that, even though if... We all remember that um, oil hit $130 on whatever, 8th of March. But actually, the the July contracts only got to about where they are now. And now they're making new uh, year high. So inflation, if you look at it in that sense, is not going to get any... any um, uh, help uh, from energy um, right now. Other sectors in the portfolio, as far as I can tell, were pretty uh, flat. Um, I did notice, though, that my trend barometer for the first time <laughs> in many, many months um, finished the week pretty pretty weak, actually, um, at 34, which is certainly below neutral. But we'll see. We are in a corrective phase, for sure. Um, so we'll see if, if it's going to just um, finding a little bit of new juice um, and will come roaring back I have a suspicion also that this month end, there's been a lot of talk about some big rebalancing being going on at the end of May and stuff like that. So I have a feeling that we might get back to the 
kind of the bigger trends uh, as we uh, head into the summer months. But who knows? However, we have some um, great topics to talk about. And the first topic um, comes from a beautiful piece that you wrote, and I will link to that in the show notes uh, today. So please just head over to the show notes on the website and you'll find the link to Alan's latest writing. It's an interesting topic because uh, Rich and I actually took a stab at it in a different way where we just said, let's just do something completely quantitative. But you're talking about selection of managers and how we need to kind of overcome the behavioral biases that we have. Well, I wouldn't say we, but most people have. Um, and especially when it comes to selecting managers, we know that um, that these play a very significant role in who gets picked and who and who, who doesn't. So um, I'm curious if you could kind of set the scene um, for for the paper, and and then I might, um, you know, politely interrupt you along the way uh, sure. with some thoughts and some comments. Comments. Yeah. No, obviously, I, I guess the background on on, on this is, yeah, I, I suppose, something from from my experience as an allocator and interacting. It's your wheelhouse, as we talked about. That's right. Uh, yeah. Before but, we press record, <laughs> and also, uh, you know, obviously, interacting with with a lot of investors and, you know, the experience of being an, uh, you know, part of a, a team allocating to managers. You know, you observe these um, uh, biases, and and it's not the case of us and them. I think that these are challenges everybody faces in making investment decisions, and 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 a lot of the focus from you know the behavioral finance literature is obviously on you know how these influence in our in our asset selection decisions and you know trading asset allocation and and even the, uh, a lot of the Howard Marks uh, notes that I alluded to earlier is around the you know the psychology of a bull market and and how we get influenced by by biases and things like fear and greed but where where obviously this was relevant for for me is as as a manager uh, as a selector, uh, uh, um, an allocator, and selecting um, hedge fund managers, and particularly hedge fund managers focused on the managed futures sector, you know, equally you have these uh, biases, uh, and everybody's kind of aware of them, and it's something that we we talk about in the allocator series a lot with the guests. But but are there strategies you can try and put in place to try and mitigate them? And that's really what motivated me to 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 write this paper to try and say, okay, here's five things that you can try and build into your investment process. That you acknowledge that we're all going to have these biases, but these strategies might help you overcome uh, those those natural biases that that we all uh, experience. So, I mean, thinking about you know what are the, the the biases? There's a whole literature on this, so I'm not going to go through uh, twenty or thirty different biases, but 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 there are those out there. I, I think w w when selecting uh, managers, the, the the big challenge I I would say is that people struggle with the random nature of returns and. And this is probably one of the things that I, you know, noticed to a large extent dealing with investors, you know, if you say if, if 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 a manager is down or a portfolio is down, and you just say, well, it's just by you know it's just by chance, you know, it, it tends to be a pretty unsatisfactory response uh, from an investor's perspective. You know, there always has to be a reason, like, well, it's down because of X and Y and Z, and you know, we think they need to do this or that. And and I suppose this challenge of dealing with randomness uh, is linked with with uh, one of the main biases that we have, and that's that I suppose what you might call the narrative fallacy that we're very often seduced 
used by narratives to explain things. So when, when actually things are just random phenomenon, uh, humans have a natural inclination to try and put a story around it to make it more understandable. Um, so when you think about that from, from kind of a, a, a manager selection uh, perspective, you know, when managers are doing well, there's always a narrative around why that's the case. You know, it might be the case that, oh, we've, we've done some research and we've invested in a new system and it's working well and we've figured it all out now, when in reality, maybe the market conditions have just become more favorable uh, for, 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 for the original system. Or when a manager is underperforming, then there's a concern, okay, is, you know, is something broken, you know? Um, and I guess, you know, the, the classic uh, example of all of this, um, you know, the narratives, and we've talked about this before, is, is maybe the performance of the industry generally, you know, going back to 2019 and, and the narratives that were in the market then or in trend following, you know, the narrative was that there's too much money in the space, there's too much money pursuing trend following, you know, central banks can control the markets. You know, I, I heard that from, from a number of, you know, sophisticated investors saying, well, we, I don't think people were saying, I don't think we'll see big moves like we have in the past because the central banks can dampen volatility. Um, you know, CTAs are too slow to react to, to price moves. The markets have sped up. These were all narratives that were put forward. Nobody said, very few people said, well, it's just random. It's just, we're just sampling, you know, the, the negative tale of the distribution. You know, I, I, I heard very few people putting that forward. And and if they did, they probably would lose the allocation, right? And and this what because what you touch on is very interesting, especially from a kind of systematic trend following point of view, maybe more so, I think, than other strategies, because uh, one of the narratives that we could say in earnest would be, well, there are just fewer trends mm. around at the moment, right? And but people have no idea what that means. And we could say, well, the environment for trend following is not great at the moment. And again, people would not really know what that means. And this is actually why back in 2007-ish or so that I was part of developing this trend barometer. Yeah. <laughs> Because no one could explain what was going on with performance. They couldn't visualize it. So the, the trend barometer that we post every single day on, on the uh, Top Traders Unplugged website is a visual uh, visual representation uh, the best we can in terms of what does a good environment look like and what does a bad environment look like. And I can share with you that some of the biggest $100 billion plus firms in our, in our industry came to me back then and asked, can we have your data? Because we can't visualize this to our clients and we really would like For, for uh, to be able to use your data. And of course, they could. So I think it is especially challenging for us when it comes to this uh, randomness because the best explanation we can give is not satisfactory for our clients in, in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I think, as you say, there were a number of... Um papers around that. I, I wrote a paper around that, but, but it wasn't the only one. And, and a, a number of people reached the same conclusion that you could very clearly see that the opportunity set for these strategies hadn't been as good as in the past. We hadn't seen the same kind of big moves, big trends. And um, but, but it is interesting how some narratives are more sedu seductive, I guess, or, or more compelling, that, that easier to latch on to uh, that, than others. So, so certainly that was, um, you know, an, a good example of kind of the narrative uh, fallacy um, 
inability to 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 deal with with with, with randomness and and recency uh, uh, you know and, and i think there's that natural um which is the other big bias that, that i write about you know in in the howard marks uh, notes that i alluded to uh, he writes about a quote from kenneth galbraith uh, and it mentions the extreme brevity of the financial memory which is a really nice way of of describing it that that you know for whatever reason in financial markets that we we, we People are so apt to uh, extrapolate recent conditions and assume um, that, that you know the things that happened far in the past won't, won't repeat. Whereas you know a lot of what we've been talking about here is that you know failure of imagination to think about how the world may evolve. So, so narratives, inability to deal with, with randomness, and then extrapolating uh, recent performance are all kind of top of the list in terms of things that can make uh, allocating um, uh, to managers uh, diff- difficult. And you see it, at, you know, on the asset allocation inside too. Morningstar do a study called the Mind the Gap study, which shows, you know, in broad terms, say say if historically the US um, uh, stock market has delivered whatever 10% annualized, investors have actually gained about 8% or so. I don't know the exact numbers, but but the fact that they come in and out of the market at the wrong times, basically chase performance, means that there is a gap between what investors have actually realized and what the, the asset classes have d- delivered. And you see the same phenomena, obviously, in terms of managers and hedge funds, that people will tend to obviously move into a manager and allocate after performance. And it it's it's kind of that the recency bias isn't just that we tend to weight the the recent performance more heavily. That's one aspect of it, but it's also the fact that even if you you kind of like a manager, uh, you you've done all your due diligence, you think there's a compelling investment process, etc. If that manager is underperforming, there's always a sense well we might just wait to see it working, um, you know, before the allocation is made. And people found that with you know allocating to manage futures as well. People say, oh yeah, I can see the case for why. Can be in the portfolio, but we're just going to wait and see see it starting to work again before before we allocate. So there's that. It's a, it's kind of another manifestation of the recency bias. And if I can just uh, if I can add to that, just two other things. Uh, and I don't know if if you uh, will recognize this or not. But the other thing is, of course, the way we as managers often see the recency bias is the fact that when investors come into our product, right, and they do their due diligence, they would look at the whole 37-year track record, right? They will have. They want as much data as possible to analyze. But then when it comes to suddenly redeeming, it's based on like, okay, you had six months in a row where you lost money, so, you know, it doesn't work, so we're out. Yes. Um, and, and that is just very interesting to see how getting in requires decades of data, getting out requires only a few months worth of data, so to speak, which is a completely, I don't know, Crazy, uh, I guess is the word I was looking for. Um, the other thing, and, and very much to to your point, is a point that I've come across uh, even this week before I had read your note. And th- this is the thing, there's no doubt that there is more interest in trend following now than we have seen for quite a while. Mm. No doubt about it. And I was uh, discussing this with um, uh, people that, um, that I talk to on a regular basis about have we seen any inflows yet? We we know the interest is there, but have we seen any inflows yet? And the argument I was met with was, well, the performance is great, has been great for the last few months, um, but there's been other periods like this. So at the moment, um, they felt that investors want to see a few more months mm. of good performance. And I was thinking, what is that going to change really? Because even if we have another three good months, you're still going to make an investment at a point where you have no idea what's going to happen after that. Yeah. <laughs> so 
back to you to to the to the point you made people just want to see a little bit more for whatever reason um and i think that is also just a sign that they don't really understand the strategy and what they're doing is they're buying performance yeah absolutely and and, and that's another example of inability to deal with the random nature of how the returns will will arrive you know you you, yeah. you allocate to trend following because you believe it has a place in a portfolio or um, or it's all your portfolio, depending on your perspective. And because you believe this is a strategy that can work over the long term in multiple market conditions, but it's very hard to say when those market conditions w- w- will arise. So equally, you'll have people saying, oh, we've had a strong period of performance. We'll, we'll, we'll wait for a little bit of a dip uh, to, to buy in. So you have multiple uh, different perspectives and biases there as to when's the right time when in fact you know most of the time the, the best time is, is is now and and then deal with deal with the volatility i think i think related to 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 all of this um when selecting um managers is is another interesting bias that you find and possibly more on the discretionary side but it's what you call representativeness and um you know that 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 very often there's a you know a, and this is selecting people on the basis of stereotype so if there's a stereotypical manager with the right pedigree and he's you know worked at the right banks investment banks before and and the, that kind of background there's a natural inclination to say you know uh, daniel kahneman writes about this that, that that basically it's selecting by using a mental shortcut so instead of saying okay does this person have does this manager have the track record all of the skills the investment process put in place that there's a compelling reason why this person has a, an edge in allocating risk and managing risk you know you might be you might take a mental shortcut and say, does this person look like a manager who has that, that ability? So it's a subtle difference. And, you know, h- how does that come about? Or, or, and it comes about again from the fact that people will have a narrative around wh- wh- why why the, why somebody uh, may have an edge. But it's about disseminating or, or dissecting the, 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 the narrative and, and really looking at, you know, I suppose, evaluating the investment process as much as the outcome um, to, is, the, is the way to kind of overcome those uh, narrative. So um, I talk about the, the, all of these things at a high level. The, the main point of, of the paper is is really t- to to kind of put forward some strategies for for overcoming these biases. But bef- that, and and that's going to be super fascinating. We're going to jump into that in a second. But but I want to ask you something personal as well yeah. before we do so. And that is, which of these narratives or biases, I should say, which of these biases? Were you and your colleagues mostly falling into yourself? Would you say? Um, yeah, I think I think all of them are. I think <laughs> that, that what I find interesting about this whole area of behavioral finance is that um, we can have a conversation around this and say, "Well, we all know about." recency we all know about representativeness and narratives and yes that's, that's a very valid perspective but it's almost like people agree and, and acknowledge it at an intellectual level but it's can you can you keep that in your mind at the moment of the decision making and say well now am i being vulnerable to any of these and uh and that's why I think the, the the strategy for overcoming them isn't just to say, well, I'm aware of them, but you have to kind of build something into your investment process that kind of formally asks you to, 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 to stop and think about them. Because, you know, otherwise you can say intellectually, oh, yeah, I know about these things, but they don't apply to me, but they will. So, you know, obviously um, it, it is, you know, it is hard to... 
you know, it, it's obviously hard to allocate to a manager who might be underperforming, even though you ha may have a belief that um, uh, that that is just pure down to pure chance. I mean, you can overcome that with with your own um, analysis and say, well, so for example, if we went back three or four years trend-following managers who allocated more to commodities, and particularly the AGs were probably underperforming. Now, you could see yeah. very clearly that we weren't seeing strong trends in those markets. So there was a good reason for that underperformance. So there are things you can do. But at the same time, it is it is still difficult to do that, to, 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 to you know book the trend, so to speak. I think that's definitely one thing that is just very difficult for, for, for all of us to overcome. But I, I would say it's not a case that, um, you know, I... I it's not a case that this is just a, a retail phenomenon. I think sometimes there's that perception, oh yeah, you've got smart money and you know, not smart money or retail money. But what was interesting for, from you know, my experience over the years is large institutional investors are just as vulnerable and susceptible to these biases as, as anybody else. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. So I'm obviously very excited to hear about the solution to all of this, um, because there are, I think, five of those. That's right. So I mean, a lot out. of it is is, yeah. is 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 will seem like common sense, and it is, but it's about embedding it in in the process. And the first thing is 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 what you touched upon is is looking at long term performance data, because there is this natural, uh, I would say default of kind of two to three years as the as the kind of performance time period that 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 most managers are assessed over and you know we certainly would have experienced that in in you know previous uh, roles as well that you would be worried that if you start posting kind of a negative or, or an underperformance number over the two or three year time window that that could lead to uh, concerns from from consultants and the like but it you know it doesn't really make sense when when you have this rich set of data that that all gives you information about the manager um, that uh, tells you how how the manager performs through multiple cycles. So you know, obviously, certain strategies may work in a particular market environment. You know, so some some strategies might have benefited, say, from a market environment characterized by QE. Others may not. Um, that, that's very evident for some kinds of strategies, like a tail risk strategy, will clearly do well. Obviously, when you get a sharp, uh, a sudden burst in volatility. But it's it, the the point is not to have that. I suppose two to three year. Time horizon and to go back and, and look at as much performance data as possible. The second thing is that very often managers will have two or three programs and they may have a program that they started and they and they buried because it didn't work. You know, you have to factor all of that into the assessment of the manager's track record because you know somebody could just start 10 programs on day one and over time by chance one of them will, will obviously be the best and then they can could just market that one. So you have to take into account uh, past failures, you have to take into account strategies that haven't done as well. And that all of this builds out a picture of, 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 a, of a larger data set. Um, and so basically, the larger the sample size, the less likely uh, your, your manager selection is going to be influenced by, by chance. Um, but you do need a lot of data to, to start to grow uh, confident that, that the, it is actual scale over, over just uh, chance. Can you can you think back of of examples? Obviously, don't don't share any names here. But can you think back of examples where you feel now, in hindsight, that yeah, we definitely pulled our investment too early. We we were here's a clear sign of us um, reacting because the data in the short run wasn't 
as good as, as we would like. And also, I imagine that even though you are, quote-unquote, uh, in your life, have been an allocator, mm. you also have clients who might say to to you as an allocator, say, what what is that manager doing in the fund? He's been doing bad in the last 12 months. So it's not like you don't have the pressures like we do yes. uh, in terms of just doing the right thing and sticking with your... Um, you know, with your process. So is there anything that springs to mind? Yeah, I think there's a couple um, of things around that. One is, yes, I'm sure there have been instances of that, that's, you know, coming, you know, um, later to a manager than, than you would have liked and, and then the environment changes. I think if you run a multi-manager portfolio, you're so, you're solving for different market environments. So you may add a manager who will do it well in a particular market environment and the environment might subsequently change, but you may well have an, another manager, a set of managers who will do well in that environment. And that's the whole point about building maybe a multi-manager portfolio. The second thing is like often you see it that the managers themselves just end up exiting the industry at, you know, at the, at the wrong time. And uh, Right. I mean, I, I, it, and again, not really to, to name any names, but we do know of a multi-multi-billion dollar uh, fund um, that was known for being a trend follower and who decided three or four years ago to to reduce the trend following part of their product. And he has said to the, to the press that, you know, this decision will be um, hugely important for the future of, of the firm. Um, and of course, he didn't know whether he was going to be right or wrong. But it came at a time where trend-following performance had been challenged for a couple of years, but no more than that. And of course, in hindsight, it doesn't look like it was a, the right decision. No, you're right. And equally, we saw you know a couple of um, firms go out of business or decide to scale back or m- become yeah. family offices, etc. You know, just at that point where you know, if if they could have stayed in, in the game, would have been very much favoured by the environment. So it's not just coming from the investors. I mean, often, sometimes that is because in, they've lost assets from investors. Sometimes it's just a, a lack of, you know, ult- ultimately it's a, a sense that maybe that, that, that the environment isn't going to change. I, I, there's another point you touch on there, which, which is slightly to, um, to the side of all of this, is that in periods of poor performance, there is often this pressure from investors to to respond to it. And again, this comes oh. back to the randomness point. It's like, oh, the manager is underperforming, so what are they doing about it? And, and again, oh, if you God, say yeah. nothing, that tends to be an unsatisfactory uh, response because... You know, we're conditioned for, you know, if something's not working, we got to work harder at it. we got to do more of it. You know, it's like the classic, you know, football manager type analogy in the team. If the team's not, not, not being successful, they need to try harder, do different tactics or something. Whereas with a, a and obviously an investment program, if it's just by random, if it's just that the market conditions haven't been favorable, you don't want the manager to be changing the program dramatically um, if, you, if you're con- confident that that's the case. Um, and that can be a difficult one to manage uh, as an allocator with, which, with your own clients because there is that sense of, well, what is, what, what is happening? Now, obviously, you do expect the manager to be reviewing everything. You do expect him to be, to be re- reassessing everything. But but widespread changes in response to losses is typically not what you want to see. I would say from speaking from personal experience, that is probably the biggest pressure that I felt from um, potential clients and clients in the last uh, 
three or four years is the fact that we, as a long-term trend follower, we don't change the models very often. Because every time you make a change to your model, you there's a chance you're going to get it wrong. And so the lack of a new narrative, something new to talk about, something, oh, this piece of magic research that we've just found and we're going to implement that uh, next week, that lack of, of things um, was very, very evident that, as you exactly um, said, investors were looking for a quick fix, right? A solution saying, well, you know, if you do, why haven't you done anything, right? And it's obviously proven, uh, and I think people can see it now, that the right thing was to stick with your knitting and, and, and not make any changes because, as you point out, it was just, quote-unquote, random that our particular time frame, maybe, or the markets we traded um, were pretty quiet for for a couple of years, and then suddenly they take off again. Obviously, I'm sure many of our colleagues would have felt the same. So uh, I think that is a real, real issue um, that you point out there. Mm. Yeah, so, so I guess the second thing then, related to all of that and from the perspective of, of the narratives is trying to cultivate a skepticism towards narratives in, in the team, you know, the, the selection team. I think, you know, if you think about how most people ad, ad, approach a manager selection, it's generally, okay, this manager is delivering strong performance, let's try and understand it. But if you approach it from the other side and say, okay, here's some manager, let's start with the null hypothesis that the manager has zero skill. Can we reject that null hypothesis? And that would, to, to, which would be an, an indicative of, of skill. So it's, it's, a, it's a change in the mindset, but it does put you in a, in a much more of a neutral position in the first instance with respect to, to the manager, as opposed to as, the, the opposite approach is almost assuming the manager has skill and then you're trying to understand well, why that's the case. Uh, so I think that's a, it, it's an important to... To be to be skeptical of narratives, because as I say, in any period of performance, the the, the manager will typically have a story. There, everybody has um, marketing teams, and and they want to give explanations as to why things are going better than they have been. Uh, but but that narrative may not be the reality. It may just have been that, you know, it, it mightn't be down to a, a new system or a new a new model that's been introduced. It could be that the the older models have just been performing better because market conditions have improved. So I think that that skepticism is something that obviously experienced allocators developed o- over time. Um, you know, this is something that we would have talked about in the in the allocator sh- series with the likes of Chris Schelling, who was saying, you know, if you just meet one one or two uh, hedge fund managers, you're you're going to be both over by their by, by their um, expertise and success etc but if you make meet 100 managers you'll have a better sense of understanding uh, the, the narratives that you hear and being able to question them so that's the second thing I think the third thing is is then obviously you know looking at the process as much as as, as, as much if not a, more than than the outcome you know we, we naturally tend to start with with performance but if you didn't look at performance at all, then you would be making assessments and managers on the basis of, you know, do they have um, a process in place or an edge? In my paper, I, I, I touch on a quote from David Swenson around this as to how, you know, managers have have an edge and what you should be looking for in terms of uh, making that assessment. But 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 that's really the, the, the way to, to assess managers in the first instance is nearly even ignore the performance data and, and meet the manager the process 
process and say, well, is there something, is there a compelling reason ex ante why this manager should be able to deliver alpha over time based on, on, on what we've learned? You know, is there something in terms of their access to data, their sophistication around trading, their experience that would say, okay, this manager is somebody who could deliver alpha over time? And then secondly, look at the performance as and, and is that uh, return generation consistent with what you would expect the, the pattern of performance to be? So again, it's kind of putting things in reverse performance second process first. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just on the point you mentioned prior in terms of the skepticism, it actually makes me think of something um, where for the longest time um, we've been discussing on the podcast about uh, trend followers lacking a narrative, right? Mm. And we've been kind of seeking what is a better narrative for trend following. Yes. Uh, you know, and because, and I think this is like, um, you know, we had uh, on on the podcast, we had Ben Hunt on uh, on the uh, uh, on the Global Macro Series a few weeks ago, and he's obviously the expert in narratives. And he talks about how Bitcoin has become Bitcoin, right? It's like, you know, uh, Bitcoin trademarked, like it's it, in order to be, uh, accepted by by everyone and 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 by uh, you know authorities and 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 allocators and all of that, you've kind of invented this framework so it fits better into um, you know the narrative etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And now that I you know hear you talk and and it's actually something I thought about uh, the last couple of days is that maybe we're doing it completely wrong. Maybe we as trend followers we shouldn't try to fit into a narrative. Mm. Maybe we're better off being the little nerdy black sheep, so to speak, uh, of a, a strategy that most people won't get and will never allocate to because we will serve our clients best and we will serve ourselves best if we simply just embrace the quirkiness and the randomness of our returns and the bumpiness and all of those things that we know deep down people don't like, but this is actually what makes the strategy unique. And therefore, we shouldn't care about trying to make changes to smooth it out or something else that we know investors would like because we might get a better sharp ratio, mm. uh, God forbid, things like that. So, I, I, I don't know if this makes sense or not, but I, I do think to some extent that maybe we should care less about the narrative and just stick to the core of of what it is uh, we we do and, and, and not worry too much about what other people think about it, so to speak, even though it may mean that we get fewer assets as an industry. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I mean it, it, it's kind of that there's a realization, I guess, that... that uh, that, as you say, you were, uh, were talking on with Ben Hunt, that that how influential narratives have become, and you know, you know, Robert Schiller has a, a book around all of this narrative economics that, exactly, that it can yeah. even swing the the economic cycle that that because people will people's behavior will be driven by by the dominant narrative. Um, so I, you know, obviously everybody in the in the industry is trying to 
run their business and raise assets, etc. So they're trying to put forward a narrative that is compelling. But um, but it has to be consistent with, with, with the nature of the strategy. And, and I think the, the, the uncomfortable thing is, that, as I say, is that there is an, a random element to the return series. And that's you know, maybe that's not an interesting narrative for some people, or maybe that's a narrative that, that doesn't resonate as well with, with some people. So, so you know, th- th- there's a natural inclination then to try and think of a, a narrative that's maybe more digestible for investors. So I think maybe that's that's the challenge there. Um, but it comes back to this lumpiness of the return series or random na- nature of the series, as you say, that, that yeah, we, we know it's a strategy that works over the long term. You just don't know which month, which quarter, which year it's going to do particularly well. Yeah, no, absolutely. But we're not finished. There's a few more, a couple last, more. Last two things very quickly, and I think they're quite interesting, you know, because we can learn from other disciplines around, um, you know, decision making. Um, so the one is the idea of, of, of doing a pre-mortem, you know, if, it's, it's very common in, in whole project management. So what you do is at the start, you say, rather than doing a post-mortem when something goes wrong and you try and figure out, you know, what happened, the, uh, in advance, you do a pre-mortem and you say, okay, let's think of everything that could go wrong and let's plan for that so in the same way you know when making an, an investment allocation decision you typically think well okay we, we we like this manager we can see the case we we like the process we we think they have an edge um but you know it can be beneficial to turn that around and at the point of allocation say well okay let's do the pre-mortem let's say what could go wrong what um what, you know what what are the range of outcomes that that, that we're, we're likely to see and and you know within that to set well what do we think is a reasonable expectation in terms of drawdown because you know in drawdowns are, are, are inevitable in, in investing so when the drawdown arrives it's not a knee-jerk reaction of oh my god this hasn't turned out the way we expected you know at the point of allocation there should have been an expectation that there will be a drawdown and it should be of a certain magnitude and there should be a kind of a probability distribution as to as to how things uh, play out so it's to think i suppose more probabilistically about the allocation uh, and within that to think about the the downside risk and and specifically the range of scenarios that that can generate negative returns um so that when they arise um that that it's not a knee-jerk reaction oh we need to get rid of this manager because they're suffering losses instead it's no this manager is down struggling um but we expected that, that they would have something like that at some point in the, in the track record. So I think that's a very important one in terms of pl- planning for, 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 for multiple scenarios. And then the final one, I think, is just in terms of the, the decision-making process around all of this in selecting managers. Individual people will be subject to different biases. So it can be very beneficial for people to do independent research. And again, there is an insight from if you're doing brainstorming, um, if you don't brainstorming to say, don't get five people in a room and then just try and brainstorm. Because what will happen is the first person will dominate or the first idea that that is put forward tends to dominate and that steers the discussion. What you should do is get the five people to write down their ideas independently and then everybody reviews them. So in the same way from a manager selection perspective, it's better if people do their manager analysis independently, go on site, make the assessments independently and then are not biased by the person who went before. Um, and I think that, that from, from my experience, that can be very valuable in terms of Different people will pick up on different uh, aspects of the manager and their experience and possible risks, etc. So again, a lot we can learn as allocators from other disciplines like project management, decision making, etc. Um, and it's all about trying to embed this into an investment process so that uh, you're basically forcing yourself to address these biases uh, head on. 
Yeah, no, I mean, as I said, it was a beautiful piece, um, which, of course, I encourage people to go and download uh, in the show notes. And it, it obviously also, um, it showcases something that we, we have to uh, acknowledge, and certainly us as managers, and that is our clients have a pretty difficult job Yes, <laughs> in terms of selecting managers. We, we definitely have to be uh, sympathetic to that, even though we sometimes uh, are surprised by their choices, let's put it that way. But yeah, we have to recognize it's not uh, it's not an easy discipline, but a very important discipline, that's for sure. All righty. So on that note, actually, in terms of allocation, you could say uh, you pointed out a Barron's article regarding the 60-40 portfolio. Now, unfortunately, I'm not a subscriber to Barron's, so I couldn't read the article. And I'm pretty sure many of our uh, listeners uh, is in the same position as I am. So maybe you can summarize what it's all about, and then we take it from, from there. Yeah, the, the piece was um, uh, written uh, by a Barron's um, journalist and about you know the demise of the 60-40 portfolio or, or this right. perception now in the market that that that, that model has to be uh, changed um it came to my attention one of our previous guests on the allocator series phil huber is quoted in it uh, in terms of okay. the shift away yeah. from 60-40 into more alternatives but a bulk of the article is around um that uh, a paper that kkr have written uh you know on this very topic saying move over 60-40 kind of thing, that the new model is 40-30-30. So interesting how this, you know, everybody's kind of saying 60-40 is dead, but but the new model is kind of up for grabs, I, I suppose you would say. The KKR perspective on it is that, um, you know, there are amendments to be say, made both on the equity side and on the bond side. So, so they're... Uh, uh, preferred solution is 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 taking twenty percent out of the equities uh, side and and putting that into uh, private real estate and private infrastructure. So forty percent equities, ten percent in each of those two, and then on the bond side, taking ten out of the of of the thir- uh, out of the forty in um, to go into private credit. So ultimately, you've got forty percent equities, thirty percent bonds, and then thirty percent in privates, diversified across credit infrastructure and and real estate. So. Um, obviously, we've been talking a lot about sixty forty. We've been talking about trend following managed futures as a as 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 part of the solution. So I did think it was interesting. Um, there was no no mention of any of that. But it, what, what, one of the things that they talk about in the paper, which which I think was was a good way of doing it, is they talk about like like why did the sixty forty come to prominence, or what what are the roles of the different components? So basically, obviously, you have. You're looking for capital appreciation. Then you're typically looking for for income, and that's the, so the capital appreciation from the equity side, the income from the bond side, and then having something as a buffer that can do well in times of stress. So that's so so the bonds basically has a dual role of generating income and this um, buffers slash diversification. Um, so you might think then, well, okay, well, where would if you were to allocate to trend following um, in in a portfolio, uh, where would that fit in? And you know, I suppose you could argue on both sides. 
sides of it because you know I, I would say oh, for the last kind of 10 years or so people typically allocated to managed futures and trend following for the diversification diversification quality particularly after you know 2008 and, and we're seeing it again now but also I guess in an inflationary environment as we're seeing you know that trend following can be a source of, of, of capital appreciation as well so so certainly how many assets and strategies out there have the ability to, to generate positive performance when when both bonds and equities are down, not many. Certainly trend following has been shown, uh, trend and macro and, and, and managed futures have all been shown to do well this year. And, and historically, we've seen that. So I think, you know, it is interesting that, you know, when you look at the the, the reasons, the building blocks for, for, for the 60-40, the, the growth, income and diversification, okay, you wouldn't typically get income from, from managed futures and trend, but certainly you can see the role there from the diversification side uh, and possibly the growth side and i suppose my other observation is on this is it with the 40 30 30 you know and with allocating to something like private credit you are doubling up i would have said there in terms of equity beta or economic beta in the sense that if you have a severe economic downturn you know you wouldn't really expect something like private credit to to provide a whole lot of uh, diversification so that's more more it's a bit like what we talked about with hugo uh, at rothschild about having you know a lot of uh, cabins on the same ship it's kind of in the same cabin of risk asset um so i thought interesting perspective you know wouldn't agree with it obviously i would see a role for for diversifying um strategies like like uh, trend and managed futures and macro uh, in there but i think in making the case for for the strategies that we like we we can focus on those elements the building blocks to say well you want something in your portfolio for growth you want something for income what are the strategies for for diversification well very clearly trend following would be one of the close uh, at the top of the list uh, from, from that perspective yeah i mean it always surprises me that some people will come out and even suggest that you get any diversification from investing in the same underlying but just now we call it private mm. right i mean how much diversification you're really going to get whether it's a publicly traded bond or a privately traded bond or, or fixed income uh, product and that's really concerning because I think it lacks an incredibly uh, an incredible amount of, of respect for the unknown and how the environments are ad- changing. And it gives, I think, people a false sense, uh, sense of diversification, um, which they will, uh, I fear, find out at some point if they were to follow this kind of advice. Um, so that's one thing. Of course, Rich and I took a stab at the 60-40 as well, yes. um, like everyone else where we just basically said, let's find an alternative to the 40. And we, I think it's the pinned blog post on the website. And then we follow that every month when we report, how is that doing? And it's doing absolutely fine, um, so to speak. And then on top of that, I just want to mention that one of the things that um, that that I look at in, in my day job is in order to, because we always get the ask um, the question, how much should I allocate to trend following? And of course, it is a moving target. You can't really say um, what is the optimal. So just for the fun of it, I look at this portfolio uh, with four different starting points, but where you can invest in stocks, you can invest in bonds, and you can invest in in trend following. And the starting points, I want them to be extreme. So I, you have a starting point before the tech crisis, 
and a starting point after the tech crisis, and then before the great financial crisis and after the great financial crisis. So four really extreme starting points to see what happens with the allocations to each asset class um, at, at, at those points. And what I will say is, because I've been doing this for, for a while now, what I will say is that it changes a lot. Um, and right now, if you look at, I think it's from the great financial crisis, um, both before and after, there are very little bonds now, right? Because the last 10 years bonds haven't returned a positive return uh, at all, actually, uh, or maybe a very slight uh, positive return. So it's dominated by equities and trend following. Um, but of course, a few years ago, you would have more of an, a bond allocation. But again, I'm like you, certainly not a proponent of just moving from uh, public equities to uh, private equity. And yeah. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are tempted to do that because if they look at the return stream of private equity, it looks better. Um, but if if anything of, of what I worry about is going to flourishing in terms of a deglobalizing world, et cetera, et cetera, higher interest rates, higher inflation, all of those things, I mean, I think private equity could be one of the biggest sufferers, actually, uh, of that regime change. So so, so it is worrying. Yeah. Um, I think the other so thing to, to point out with, 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 with a lot of these articles that you see, looking at how these different versions have done historically, you know, um, you know, obviously anything, if you go back 10, 20 years ago, interest rates were higher. So anything that was fixed income related will look right. much better because the, the, the starting point was a much higher yield. Uh, obviously, yields have risen a bit now in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, but still, you know, low in a historical context. And obviously, real, real yields are, are, are very negative. So you have to be very careful in, in with some of these uh, with the analysis that show, well, if you change to 60, 40 and add 10% to the strategy, you know, it, it makes it look better. You know, you have to think, well, how, what are, what are reasonable return expectations uh, for, for those assets and strategy in the context of low interest rates? Exactly. And, and what are the real risks in a context of a world where interest rates are probably going to rise uh, or more likely to rise than they are to fall significantly from here? Uh, so um, I think those are, those are great points that you point out. But you also brought along one other article, and I've, of course I can add to that because there were actually two articles out this week uh, in the press that were kind of positive when it comes to uh, trend following and 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 so on and so forth, which we don't get much positive press, let's put it that way. So we were kind of, I think, both of us latching on to those um, and wanting to highlight them, uh, but maybe for different reasons. So I'll I'll let you go. I'll let you go first. Uh, I think uh, on the uh, I think this was the FT, the Financial Times yeah. article. Well, well, I mean, when you see trend following in the front of the FT, it's it's always interesting. You know, I would say <laughs> generally it hasn't been positive news going back. If, you know, the last time it was uh, maybe a number of years ago, but but it was a positive story about the you know the how strong performance of well it, it described as quant hedge funds uh, in 2022 and. The journalist uh, Lawrence Fletcher, I mean, he's covered trend following before. He covered what we talked about, you know, the challenges back in 2019, yeah. and he's written about that too. So good to see him coming back to the topic and highlighting the good performance this year. Um, what was interesting uh, from my perspective, I saw he had posted it on, on LinkedIn, and then there was a number of kind of questions about it, uh, which were very typical of the kind of 
responses you often see uh, from 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 people around trend following and it's like uh, are these not quant strategies and ai should they not have adapted and why did they have the bad performance for 10 years so it's just was interesting from my perspective that you know that these things that we're talking about are still very much out there misperceptions around what trend is what it isn't what are adaptive strategies what are not and also that that uh, as we've talked about before that this perception that the trend has been in badly for for a number of years is seems to be still out there even though as we know you know 19 20 21 have all been decent years for for for, for trend following so interesting uh, that 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 the industry is getting some 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 press for 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 the good performance but also interesting that that, that these misperceptions around what is um, trend following and managed features still remain uh, out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a couple of things. Um, so you're absolutely right. It was Lawrence Fletcher who wrote uh, the FT article. And he starts out by by writing, trend-following hedge funds, which use mathematical models to try to predict market movements, had struggled for years in an era dominated by central bank bond buying, a stimulus tool to suppress much of the volatility on which they thrive. But the $337 billion industry is now making its biggest gains since 2008 financial crisis, according to data from hedge fund research. Now, the headline, and I forget the headline as we're speaking right now, but there was something about biggest gains or whatever, and then it had something like after the debt decade. So I took the liberty, and maybe I didn't come across uh, nice enough actually when I did, but I did tweet back to Lawrence to say that I didn't really like the uh, after debt decade in the sub headline, because when I look at the peers uh, that we compare ourselves to in, in our industry, I can certainly see that a number of the peers are up more than 100% since 2013. So the last more or less the last 10 years and I can see on our own returns that they're even better so I don't really call that a dead decade when you look at returns like that and then he kindly replied and saying well of course there's always going to be exceptions right so okay fair enough Um, um, so there we are but I also wanted to point out to him um, politely of course is that it is wrong to talk about that our models predict market movements we don't predict anything Mm. And so these are important things to get out um, because if we finally get some positive press or some narrative coming out, we need to make sure that at least it's representing what we do correctly. So those were the things. I didn't get a comment back on on that particular point. Um, you know, great to see that uh, that Lawrence and the, and the FT is writing something about the strategy Um Sometimes I wish that they would just reach out and talk to people from the inside before posting their their article, just to make sure that there weren't something that maybe could be, um, you know, uh, changed. But, you know, one of his um, uh, colleagues, of course, the uh, Robin Rickenworth from uh, from the FT, the, the now the new editor of Alphaville, was on the podcast a few, um, a couple of months yes. ago after I had a chat with him about his book Trillions, uh, which is an interesting book for sure. And I did, I couldn't help uh, towards the end of the conversation ask about his own relationship with trend following and, you know, I think that, I mean, from memory, I, I think he said that, you know, he does like quant strategies. It's really something he did, he's interested about. Um, I don't know that he's a specialist in trend following. And I think he felt also that these kind of, what we talked about uh, earlier today, the lumpiness of the returns uh, and, and, and all of that, 
made him less excited about the the strategy, um, which I think is a shame because it really is one of those strategies where you have decades of evidence, decades of data uh, to support it, which you can't really say about most hedge fund strategies uh, today. Mm. Um, so it's it's a shame, but you know we'll 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 keep fighting the good fight and and so on and so forth. But there was one more article that. Um, that um, you, I don't think, I don't know if you've seen this one, perhaps, um, but it, that was from Barron's actually, and that was, uh, I think, on the 26th of May, it came out, and it was just heading managed futures funds look like a smart bet in a tough market, and of course, that is a perfectly fair uh, comment, and the article um, basically just explained what trend following is, and I think it did a pretty good job uh, of of doing so, and it comes back to this point that, that we talked about earlier that you know, maybe it's fine that we don't get too much press because um, we shouldn't really try and let the narrative dictate how we should design our models, yeah. right? We should just stick to what we do. And if people like it, great. Yeah. If they don't, that's Absolutely. fine. Absolutely, yeah. Now, I think, I mean, I think the difference now is that if you go back a few years, you had to paint a picture for people as to a market environment that could be favorable. You know, you say we, we could have yeah. geopolitical risk, we could have inflation, we could have rising rates, divergences in the economic cycles across countries. So you don't have to paint a picture anymore. It's very evident that that's the environment we're in now. So I think, you know, so from that perspective, that that narrative is a lot easier for people to, to understand and appreciate. It is and it isn't because I still feel that a lot of investors and maybe also people in, in the kind of financial media are expecting that things will go back to quote-unquote normal. So anything before COVID, let's call it that, and certainly anything before the Ukrainian war would be considered normal conditions. You know, the stable, globalized world that we all know and and we all remember because that's the world we've grown up in. That's the norm. And this is the exception, and we're going to come back to it. But as I don't know if you and I talked about it um, before, certainly I've talked about it on the podcast, that what I worry, and of course I could be completely wrong, but what I worry about is actually we need to think about, we need to zoom out and we need to think about maybe the last 70 years after World War II and certainly the last 20 years in this sort of carry regime as the abnormal period. Because if you go back in history, Europe is not uh, is is not a safe uh, and and stable place. Um, the world is not a safe and stable place. So what if what if the whole narrative is wrong? What if we what if we are thinking about this in the wrong way, where we are sitting there? It's almost like buying the dip, right? We hope we're thinking that buying the dip is the norm. That's what will work mm. best over time. But what if actually it's selling the rally now? That will be the best strategy for the next thirty years, right? Uh, I'm just painting an extreme picture here, of course, but I'm not, I don't think I'm painting necessarily an extreme picture when it comes to how the world will change, because I think it's very hard, for me at least, it's very hard to imagine that things will go back to the way they were before. There's just simply too many things that have changed. There are so many things that we have uncovered, or at least it has become known now by many people that there are real challenges uh, with having a globalized world and the security um, that um, that 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 mm. world lacks when it comes to energy, when it comes to to food or the weaknesses, I should yes. say, um, in those things. 
So I'm maybe thinking a bit the completely wrong way. I don't I don't know, but that's how I feel at the moment that that we're still hoping things will go back to quote unquote normal. normal. Yes, yeah. I just don't think that the normal that people are hoping for is the real normal um and that we're heading back to this more uncertain world, um more volatile world and in a world where divergent strategies will have much better conditions compared to the convergent strategies I exactly guess. yeah no i mean you're right i mean if you go back far enough in history we you, you see these cycles of globalization and, and deglobalization you know back in the late 19th century up until what about 19 the 1920s you know that was a period of great globalization and, and world trade and then it gradually unraveled uh, through Two world wars and 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 it only came back then uh, in in you know probably since what the 1980s I guess 1990s you know and 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 another thing that I think we we don't talk enough about but we will talk about it in in a few weeks uh, in one of the um, new episodes we're doing actually um, which we recorded yesterday but then there's this whole reversal of demographics that's happening which we can't stop i mean this has nothing to do with sitting at a negotiation table saying oh let's just uh, agree to stop demographics right no 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 <laughs> this is coming um and and the change in demographics around the world has a huge impact on inflation and other things that are linked to that um and i don't necessarily know that people are thinking about it in the right way. But I don't want to take all the thunder out of the guest's argument, but um, that is another thing that I feel um, needs to be rethought in terms of going back to the normal. Because when demographics fundamentally change in the world, things can't go back. Well, they can maybe in a few generations, but not in my lifetime, that's for sure. And I don't think we're thinking about that. Back to your point earlier that we talked about, we need to be more imaginative about what can happen. And I'm not sure we're there yet, as they say in Shrek. Absolutely. Are we there yet? (laughs) (laughs) Any final thoughts on all of this before we move on to a little bit of a performance update and wrapping things up? No, I look look forward to hearing that. I mean, I I agree with you on the demographics. It's something that has been um, put forward. Charles Goodhart, I think, had a book around that. That That is the co-author of of that book we recorded with yesterday. It's a fantastic episode. So uh, you are in for a treat. There's a lot of very interesting topics, not just the demographics, but also, you know, about aging and and how, you know, the, the... the number of people that will be required for um, health to be health workers basically uh, will, will will ratchet up over time, and because demographics is such an interesting one, so often you hear, you know, it thrown out as part of the deflationary disinflationary argument. If you say, "Oh well, de- demographics that's Indeed, that's a disinflationary yeah. force," but but is it really? You know, when you it, it's it, there's many dimensions to it when you get into it. So. Very much look forward to hearing uh, hearing more on that. Oh yeah, no, you you uh, you're up to speed on those some of those arguments, and but I think when people heard it, I was listening to it yesterday. This is uh, being recorded with a with a with another host, uh, Kevin Coldiron, uh, who whom we had on as a guest. But when I was listening to it yesterday, I thought, hmm, that is not what I expected. So I think a lot of people will uh, get the same feeling when they listen to the argumentation. So, uh, yeah, that will be out in a few weeks uh, as we launch the new Ideas Lab series. In the meantime, though, uh, performance is, uh, as I said, a little bit softer this month, um, but it's pretty, uh, 
Yeah, it's pretty pretty good actually for 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 the corrections we've seen in the markets. We're holding on well. Beta 50 index is actually as of Thursday still up 44 basis points, up 15% for the year. Socked in CTA index pretty much unchanged, down 11 basis points for the month, up 19 and a quarter for the year. Socked in trend index also pretty flat, down a quarter of percent, up 25.6 for the year. And the Socked in short term traders index up 35 basis points uh, for the month. And up 9% for the year. I think yesterday was maybe a little bit of a down day, but nothing much really. As I mentioned, trend barometer, it's weak at 34. Um, the MSCI world obviously had a strong uh, week. So we are back in the black for the month, up quarter percent, but still down 13% for the year. And the world government bond index just slightly up six basis points so far this month. Um, despite the rallies we've seen in the last week or so. Um, I'm going to wrap up this conversation. And of course, if you enjoy these conversations or any of the episodes on the podcast, we would be ever so grateful if you would take the time to rate and review the podcast in iTunes and Spotify. We had a, some really nice um, ratings and reviews uh, coming in this week. So I want to acknowledge that even though I, I'm not going to name names here, but uh, I do read every single one of them. So uh, I, and we do appreciate them. Um, next week, uh, Rich is back from Down Under. So uh, I'm sure you can guess we're going to go into some uh, hardcore trend following, I'm sure. Uh, we've had some good discussions in the meantime, and uh, I'm sure we'll come up with some uh, good topics. But if you want to um, have a question answered, perhaps, um, or a topic discussed, you can do so by emailing us at info at toptradersonplug.com, and we'll do our best to bring it up uh, on Saturday. Um, that leaves me to say, from Alan and me, Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as always, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.